You're listening to highlights from One Planet Podcast interview with name of interviewee plus their position and their organization's name. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. The book Strange Natures, which I wrote with my colleague Bill Adams from Cambridge, is an attempt by the two of us to engage the larger audience, both in the conservation community and those just interested in the natural world, about a new technology which is already remaking the world and has potential to do so even more. But it's a technology which has most of its applications in human medicine and agriculture and is just starting to climb the fence and get into the conservation world. And that's the field of synthetic biology, which is known by some as extreme genetic engineering. Uh, That's a name mostly used by people who don't like it. It amounts to a set of tools that humans have developed to be able to very precisely and accurately change the genetic code, the DNA of living organisms, in order to get those organisms to do things that humans want. So the applications in medicine are predominantly devoted at trying to make us healthier people. And they range from some really exciting work on tumor biology to work on the microbiome, which is all of the thousands and tens of thousands of species that live in our lips, our mouths, our guts, our skin. And in agriculture, it's primarily directed at at crop genetics, trying to improve the productivity of crops, the nutritional value of crops, the ability of crops to respond to climate change and a whole variety of other things. So all of these, some people may have heard of one of these tools called CRISPR, used to very precisely alter the sequences of DNA. And so this book that Bill and I wrote is about the impending intersection between synthetic biology and the field of nature conservation, but not an examination of the technologies per se, but an examination of the way that we are going to end up needing to think about the intersection between our ability to change DNA and what it means to be natural and what it means to conserve things, and whether or not we want to conserve things that we have altered. The question about whether you're modifying the genome um, and how that that is modifying the genes of a given organism and what that means in relationship to other modifications is something that is the topic of the book and really at the root of most of the discussions and arguments that I've been in for the last decade or so. It's as if humans don't want to recognize that worlds exist at at scales that are too small for us to see. So there's a reason that germs and viruses are so scary and that the COVID pandemic and other pandemics have been so worrisome to people because we can't see what's going on except in the way it impacts us. And this is true of the microbiome, this is true of diseases, this is true of the microbial world, and it's true of the DNA that is the basis for life itself. So we, there seems to be a desire to believe that at a scale that we can't see, our impacts have not been felt. And that therefore, when I come along or people like me come along and say, 
you know, there are people who are talking about making modifications at this scale, which you thought was untouched because you can't see it. It's sort of a gas and horror. Oh my God, how could you possibly do that? That's untouched. But of course, you have only to think about that to realize that that is not, shall we say, an evidence-based position. Because any modification that you've seen, the fish becoming smaller because of overfishing or certain kinds of deer no longer have as big antlers because the hunters shot all the males that had big antlers, those changes are in fact a result of changes to the genomes, to the genes of those species, which have then become manifest in things that we can see. So that's a tough thing for people. They don't want to think about things they can't see. And so they would prefer to think that it was all fine until we came along. And to get them to believe that it wasn't all fine, it still is not all fine. And this is about what kinds of change we want, witting or unwitting, because right now it's been unwitting most of it, with the exception of domestication. And we can return to that if you wish. It's a scary thing to people. And that's why uh, part of the quote I read is about the wilderness, because there is almost a belief that there is a wilderness of the genome, that it is untrammeled, it is untouched, it is, and if we just saved it, it would remain that way. I did my PhD work, most of it on giant anteaters. These things that really aren't very smart, but are super interesting and cool and very long lived. So at Florida, as part of my research, I started to become interested in subsistence hunting by native peoples in the Amazon, which took me into an area of the intersection between ecology, really, and conservation. And I got tenure. I did the kind of university professor thing. But my parents had been such strong advocates of education, and they had programmed me. And the end of the program was you get tenure and then you're done. So I got tenure and the influence of my parents then dropped away. And I thought, okay, now what am I supposed to do? And I realized that I really wasn't an academic. So I went off, I joined the Nature Conservancy to be the director of science for the Latin America Caribbean Division and to run a large US government funded program on parks in peril. For five years did that, and then went to the Wildlife Conservation Society, which is the organization that runs the four New York City zoos and aquarium and has field programs in 60 plus countries. And so I work across both the captive side, the zoo side and the, the field side. And yet I felt that I had run my course and it was time to do something very different. So. My wife, Pamela, and I really wanted to move to Maine, so we moved to Maine, and that required that I set myself up as an independent person, thereby creating Archibaldo Consulting. And that, that came along at the same time as this growing interest on my part in synthetic biology and its impending intersection with conservation, which is still impending, but a decade ago, it was super impending. And the folks I worked with at WCS in New York when I tried to get them interested in the topic, would say to me, okay, listen, I've never heard of this, but I'm going to ask you one question. This is what one of my colleagues said. If I learn about this, is it going to help me save tigers next year? This was a tiger biologist. And my answer was no, it won't help you save tigers. And he said, so I got other things to do. And off he went. And I thought, okay, so that's the right answer for him. 
but it's not the right answer for me because I am tired of being in a conservation world where we are the last ones to find out new stuff. And we only find out about it when it starts really messing up the natural world. And then we say to society, why didn't you tell us about that? So my, I set out with the goal of making sure that as many people in my world, the conservation world, that they would not be able to say, why didn't anybody tell us about synthetic biology? Because I would have told them about synthetic biology. And they needed to form their own opinion. I'm not telling them what they need to believe, but I'm telling them they need to think about it and form their own opinion. So that's that's my mission from God, was to do that. And uh, that's why I got asked by IUCN to form this working group and just had fabulous people on it. And we were just abused up one side and down the other by the antagonists who claimed that we were not taking, we were trying to tilt the field towards a pro-technology state, which we weren't. And so I've done that and I got the chance to talk to you and your audience. And I think I particularly want to say this, which is I'm 67 years old and the world of the future is only going to be partially determined by me. But I know there are a lot of younger people who you like to talk to and hope to listen. And these technologies are going to be things that you grow up with. They're not going to be foreign and strange the way they are to me and my generation. I attended a meeting on CRISPR in Boston a few years ago, and sitting behind me were two young ladies. I guess they were probably about 15. And they sat through this day-long worth of really technical talks. And at the end of the meeting, I turned around and I said, wow, I introduced myself and I said, what are you doing here? And they said, well, we got, an, we got uh, a pass from our high school biology teacher to come to this meeting because she is going to be teaching CRISPR and how to do it in our high school class. And we wanted to learn more about it. And I thought, son of a gun. So they're going to be 15-year-olds who are learning how to do these technologies that are now not completely, because there are school courses in it, but largely confined to university labs and, and companies. So this stuff is going to be like the cell phone technology. It's going to become part of the way people are growing with. And I would like them to be thinking critically about how they want to use these technologies as they grow and become the ones who are going to decide what happens in the world. Me and the older folks who are busy arguing, we're going to drop off the edge of the map and they're going to be the inhabitants of this world. And I really want them to have thought long and hard and I don't know what they're going to decide, but I want them to have thought long and hard about it. So that's what I'm hoping. The other important thing I've learned is that much of my life was spent based on a model that not only had I not heard of, but has been thoroughly rejected. And that's called the information deficit model or knowledge deficit model, which says that if you provide people with better information, they make better decisions. And my 30 years of my life were spent training students, doing research, publishing, telling people what management implications are. Turns out that people who study this say, humans don't respond that way. And if you think about voting and advertising, it's completely true. So I spend eight hours a day being a scientist and I come home, turn on the television, and there's a commercial that has a cute little girl with a puppy selling cell phone service. And I'm immediately thinking, maybe I ought to change my cell phone service. So 
That's not a knowledge deficit. That's the imagination. That's the emotion. And I think that much of what people are going to be thinking about the natural world and these technologies is going to come about through works of fiction. And you have only to look at movies. One of my favorite is, is Dwayne Johnson's one called Rampage, which is about a satellite that drops CRISPR from the sky and it creates enormous gorillas that almost destroys Chicago. That movie and the Jurassic Park movies are really important in structuring the way people think about an actual technology. And when you say to them, as I have, that's a work of fiction, they say, I don't care. I know what's going to happen. I watch Jurassic Park. So if we're going to help this next generation have a better earth, just writing books is not going to be enough. We're going to have to be engaging in these creative arts, be they digital, be they film, be they music. So that's the code I wanted to add. And of course, it isn't, as we saw in the quote, and it will not continue. Make a choice. You want to make changes or you want the changes to be made without your attention? We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.